All right, friends, we finally come to the end of our study of the book of Ephesians. And if you've been here with us for the entire series, it's been great. And you would remember, hopefully, that this book, this little letter, actually speaks profoundly into every aspect of the Christian life. And if I were to summarize the message of this letter, I'll probably say this, that God is now reunifying humanity by redeeming a people who live and relate to each other by a unique set of values modeled after the life of Jesus. So it's about the constitution of this new nation, a creation of a culture that will last unto eternity. How Jesus accomplished that for us and how we can experience these realities now is what we've been talking about. And now, Paul is going to conclude this letter by making it crystal clear for us what it is that is actually the greatest threat to this new creation reality is, leaving us with an awesome metaphor that helps us respond to these threats which we face daily. Now, why is this important for us? Well, would you not agree that an inseparable part of enjoying something or someone who we genuinely love is by diligently defending it against that which threatens it. And although these tasks can feel incredibly tedious and anxiety-inducing, we do it because we cannot really enjoy this person or thing unless we can be convinced that he, he or she is safe from all threats, right? I think we experienced this a couple of years ago in the COVID-19 pandemic. In Indonesia, at least, most of us willingly changed pretty much everything about our lives in order not to only protect ourselves, but those who we love who are especially vulnerable. We distanced ourselves from our friends who we might have had previously close relationship with. We put on really inconvenient and uncomfortable and honestly sometimes ridiculously looking protective gear like those weird masks in front of our face. We put on and adopt some really inconvenient routines that would seem insane in other circumstances, like spraying every corner of your house, sanitizing your hands constantly, and then violating your nose with some swab in order to get tested. And by far, the ones who are most diligent in taking these precautions are those with small children and elderly living with them. Because... They wanted to play with their kids and like hug their grandma without feeling like they might infect them with something that could kill them. Because when we have something that is precious, which is under threat, we wouldn't mind making difficult adjustments in our lives in order to protect it. Now, I'm not judging any of you who are not taking these precautions. I'm nowhere near as diligent as that. But all I'm saying is that I appreciate that level of commitment and understand that it is a labor of love. And so with this new creation reality that we're all invited to be a part of through Christ, although Reformed theology especially insists that our salvation cannot be lost, our statement of faith clearly outlines that. But the Bible does not or does seem to tell us clearly that our relationship with God can be seriously harmed. Hence, an inseparable part 
of loving God and enjoying this great gift that God has given us is by maintaining this peace with Him and committing to the painstaking labor of defending it against all threats. So with that in mind, let us finally read how Paul tells us to do that from our text, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 until the end. This is the Word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authority, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. Well, that was cool, wasn't it? Right? It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture when I was a kid, right? I mean, like, what little boy doesn't love the idea of putting on some, like, holy armor? And I think like this is a really cool metaphor that's not meant to scare us about the fact that there are threats out there. But as the final verses of this letter reminds us, everything that Paul has written so far in this letter is meant to give us, the brothers or the church, peace in times of war by making us aware of the strength given to us by the grace of God who has loved us with a love incorruptible. And our text tells us that there is at least three things that we need to understand in order to have strength, the strength to have peace, all right? Our three points. To live the Christian life in peace, we must understand, first of all, the nature of our enemy, then the nature of our struggle, and lastly, the nature of our gear, okay? Uh, we'll have the points again later, but with that in mind, let's get straight in. Point one, the nature of our enemy. Let's first look at the enemy that Paul identified for us there in verses 11 and 12. It tells us to stand against the schemes of who? The devil. And we're wrestling against who? The rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness and the forces of spiritual forces of evil. Now, it's a pretty interesting list, and what 
Paul seems to want to do behind the, uh, describing the adversary this way is that he's trying to emphasize that there is actually some sort of inhuman, supernatural, but personal power that is at work behind all human evil. Right? Paul does not demystify the Christian faith, but he is saying that there is an invisible, supernatural enemy working against us. And if we look at the list uh, more closely, he first identifies this ultimate foe in verse 11 as the devil. And he wasn't thinking probably about the red goat man with horns and a pitchfork that the cartoons tell us. But the devil here is actually a title, right, in the Bible that means the slanderer or the one whose role it is, is to highlight what's wrong with us and damage what we think about ourselves and about each other. And he does this by means of his schemes, or more literally in the Greek, his methods. Now, this is not the first time Paul talks about the devil's schemes in Ephesians. Earlier in chapter 4, he actually lists out how we can know if we've fallen prey to the schemes of the devil, like when we have fits of uncontrollable anger, when we habitually lie, when we've normalized thievery and unwholesome and destructive thoughts. Basically, any behavior that is characteristics of how humans are when they're enslaved in sin or anything that has no place in God's new creation are a product of devil's scheming. That pretty much covers the feel, doesn't it? in terms of our selfish, sinful, harmful behaviors. So in Paul's mind, friends, the threat the devil poses to us isn't that we could be possessed like, you know, that movie, The Exorcist, that we're going to get cursed, santet, pelet, or jumpy, jumpy, you know what I mean? Though, you know, it might happen, but definitely the more routine way the devil attacks us is by trying to enslave us again to our sinful ways. I love how this one theologian puts it when he says that Satan does not leave fangs on your neck, but lies in your heart. And he does this, friends, not by simply inspiring greedy or lustful thoughts in our hearts. But I think the Bible portrays entire sets of values, social structures, and leaders as things that are intimately connected with the enemy. The devil is invested in the political, gender, and religious forces in the world that govern and shape human existence, working to divide and corrupt what God had intended to unify. That's why Paul's agenda in these letters is to tell us how God actually unifies these things. So nonetheless, right, I think what the Bible wants us to see about these spiritual forces is that they are never far off. The schemes of the devil is all around us. We live in it every day, and it is always trying to influence us. There is no escape from the schemes of the enemy. Then, interestingly, though there is one devil, in verse 12, we are described to be fighting against these plurality of powers, as if the devil is the mastermind and these powers are some kind of subordinates that enact the devil's will. But we've already seen the rulers and authorities mentioned there in verse 12, back in chapters 1 and 3. And there, they're described as already being defeated by Christ. 
And these cosmic powers are a new one, right? Outside of the Bible, this Greek term is used to describe like godlike beings, you know what I mean, like Zeus or Hermes. But it says there that the scope of their power is limited to this present darkness, which in chapter 5, Paul has already said that we've already been delivered from. And then the spiritual forces of evil are a more general term for every malevolent, evil, spiritual creature out there, but they are said to be in the heavenly places. So we shouldn't be scared of them either. Because in chapter 1, it says that from there, God gives us every spiritual blessing and has raised us up and to rule with Him in the heavenly places. In other words, this is not meant to be a list for us to simply categorize different spiritual beings. Rather, after reading this description of who we're fighting against, against uh, in light of everything else that Paul has written in this very letter, Paul is telling us that we shouldn't be scared. Yes, they are very much out there, and yes, they do have power and they do mean to harm us, but actually we have a much greater power looking out for us. Hence, our response is supposed to be a diligent watchfulness instead of paranoia or panic. And it makes sense to me, right, that Paul is really emphasizing that these threatening forces are inhuman and, not, uh, and supernatural, that they are indeed not of flesh and blood. Because what was the huge item in Paul's agenda as he was writing this letter? that the Christian community would be united, right? That we would be able to deeply love and care for one another. And it is only in a worldview where the ultimate enemy is not human can there be a framework that allows us to love and care for all humans. Because in a completely materialistic worldview, the problem will inevitably be human. Evil can only be located and sourced from human persons or institution. Since there is no transcendent source of evil, it's much easier for us to make a devil out of a human and blame them for all our problems. So it makes sense that we become preoccupied with identifying the threat in someone else, or perhaps within ourselves, and fighting against it. Constantly, consequently, leading us to resent hate, or even harm those who we think are responsible, be it other people or ourselves. In fact, I think I am much more prone to the latter. I stumble over the same sins over and over again, seemingly helplessly unable to break the same habits, being captive to the same sinful and selfish thoughts, and I can get really frustrated with myself and beat myself up saying, what is wrong with me? I'm just so messed up, even questioning at one point if I'm really saved or worthy of being saved. Making the Christian life very exhausting and deflating as I find myself failing to see the transformation and experiencing the joy that the Bible supposedly promises. But if there is, friends, an inhuman evil, spiritual evil, working against every human and trying to enslave them back into sin, and that He is the real enemy, that although I am not absolved, we are not absolved or excused from all our sins, we are still responsible because we chose our sins, right, and we executed them. Nonetheless, 
we can never say that anyone is only ever evil all the time or that he or she is beyond hope. So we have no reason to continuously beat ourselves up or demonize anyone. But actually, we are able to compassionately grieve how we humans are still so hopefully, hopelessly vulnerable to being captive to the devil's schemes while having a firm hope that there is indeed freedom for this, from this in Christ for us all. And the only way we can never experience this freedom is by actually using the power of Christ to fight the enemy, which begins by having the right mentality and expectations about the fight we're getting into. Just point two, the nature of our struggle. Let's now take a closer look at the description of the spiritual conflict that we are in that's scattered a little bit towards the passage. And I think we can at least draw two conclusions about what our stance should be like, knowing that we do face such a dangerous enemy. And the first is that the struggle that we have requires a proactive and aggressive resistance. We see this a bit more clearly where there are two forms of the verb to stand uh, that is used in our passage, which is uh, most, mostly the standard histemi, but in verse 13, there's actually an alternative form, anti-histemi, translated there as withstand the evil day. Now, this is an interesting choice of words by Paul because anti-histemi has the connotation of not exclusively a defensive posture, like holding on for dear life, but it is an aggressive pushing back. The military image here suggests that we are actually trying to advance our lines and gain ground against the enemy by pushing him back, pushing against the sin and the powers that are trying to enforce their will upon us. We actually hear Paul give this instruction in, all, in far more aggressive and almost barbaric words in Romans chapter 8 and Colossians 3, where he straight up tells us to put to death sin. We've got to kill it, search it out, look for it, and put it to death. Communicating that there ought to be in every Christian a deep hatred for the sin that is trying to hold us and our fellow brothers and sisters captive, a holy hatred that moves us into action. So that means the conflict that we are in requires us to never in any way be trying to compromise or negotiate with sin. To never normalize it because everyone in the culture is doing it. To never take for granted the precious blood of Christ that has been shed for our sins by delaying repentance for sin. Wanting to have our fill of it now and repent later once we're satisfied because we know that God is gracious and loving enough to forgive every sin and not to be fooled, ever be fooled, into thinking that we can manage or control our sin, thinking that we can over, get over it when we really want to. To name a few ways that I, and I suspect many of us here, have failed to withstand against sin. So what's your way? What's your excuse that you give? It wouldn't hurt for us to introspect ourselves and find out. Because it's so, 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 so dangerous, friends, to be passive against the sins that the devil is trying to enslave us to. 
first and foremost because of the fact that it is such a grievous offense to sin against God unrepentantly and trample underfoot the blood of the covenant from which you have been saved, as the author of Hebrews says. And also at the same time because it is putting us in a slippery slope, playing a dangerous game that we're always going to lose because it's ridiculously easy for sin to grab a hold in our hearts. It's so easy for us to fall in love with sin and fool ourselves into thinking that sin is harmless or occasionally even beneficial. In fact, the absolute worst thing that could happen to us is if God allows our conscience to be seared to the point where we no longer feel the guilt and weight of our sin. And God allows us to be handed over to the foolish and sinful desires of our hearts where we simply receive the consequences of our sin. Trust me, friends, I've been there, and I can tell you the story later. The only way that God got me out is because of the surpassing riches of His grace, a grace that was given through immense heartbreak and anguish that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Heard a lot, but looking back, it was really the only way. So I plead with you all, do not let it get to that point. So along those lines, the second thing about this battle that we have to remember is that this battle is one that we have to be prepared for at all times. This really comes through um, in some of the words Paul uses to describe our spiritual conflict here. Look again uh, in verse 12. He says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul intentionally uses an athletic term here instead of a military one for the kind of fight that we're in. Because the struggle is thought of as a hand-to-hand combat. And this is also reinforced by the kind of sword that's been talked about there in uh, verse 17. It's actually a sword, short-handed sword that's used for close combat. So the image isn't like we're shooting each other from a distance, but we're facing the enemy in a fight. But at the same time, the enemy isn't fighting fair because it also says in verse 16 that there will be these fiery darts, right? these flaming arrows that will come to attack us without warning. So we got to be protected at all times because these attacks will not always be visible or predictable. Temptation is always around the corner. Sin is always crouching at our door, waiting to consume us. Hateful desires, lustful thoughts, and the devil's accusations do come suddenly out of nowhere, and we have to be ready. In fact, in verse 13, it says that Paul says that we should put the armor of God on that we, so that we can withstand the day of evil. And he's not talking about some future day. Remember, chapter 5, verse 16, he tells us to redeem the time because these days are evil. So it's right now, the present, every single day before Christ returns and establishes his kingdom forever, we are in a fight. So friends, the image of our situation is that now the war has been declared, the horn has been sounded, we are on the front lines and the fight is coming to us, ready or not. Right? Imagine Lord of the Rings or Braveheart or something where we have the clashing sword of the enemy behind us and these arrows flying behind us. And while our enemy is indeed 
formidable, he is definitely also beatable. Because fighting with us is the Son of Man who is fighting, who has defeated already sin and death. And, we're, and if we fight with him, our victory is sure because we will be fighting a battle that, as the song says, we've already won. So how we do that and fight with him is our last point, point three, the nature of our gear. Now let's look at the components of the armor which Paul describes here. There is a book on there that spends like 1,500 words going deep, 1,500 pages, sorry, going deep on each item of the armor and what it means to put it on. Unfortunately, we cannot be that extensive this morning. So what I'll do is I'll make some brief remarks about the specific parts of the armor because it's interesting. Paul describes the armaments this way, and I think we're supposed to meditate on it. Then I'll conclude with what actually I think is the main and general takeaway is from this list. So the first component there that's mentioned there is the belt of truth. But this is not a belt that holds your pants up as we would wear today. It's actually a form of ancient underwear. Sorry to ruin the armor for you there, right? But what it is, it's like these leather tights that go underneath the armor and it's supposed to protect your thighs and everything else that's precious down there from arrows or things like that. So the image here is that the truth is the base of our armor. It's what our protection from the enemy is grounded in. And we also have, it says, the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel, right? It can be said that these parts of the armor is part of the uniform that's needed for routine operations. The soldier never takes these off even if the battle is going on so that they can always be ready. So the image here is that the Christian soldier ought to always live with righteousness and walk according to the gospel that saves us. We never leave home without it. As in, the righteousness that's given to us by Christ and the message of the gospel is what we always hold on to in our daily lives as our protection. But the next two pieces of armor there is what's really going to save us when the battle is raging at its worst and the attacks are indeed coming. The helmet of salvation that will keep us from dying, especially from unforeseen attacks, and also our shield of faith that we have to hold up, that's how shields work, that will help us extinguish the darts of the enemy. These ones, the soldier must consciously put on when they know it's time to fight. So that when the darts come, when the accusations of the devil come, saying we are hopeless, we are a worthless sinner who will never get over our sins, we can hold our faith up and it will bang into our faith, saying that in the promises of God, Jesus has saved us. That the Holy Spirit is working in us to empower and perfect us. That despite our failures, God's unconditional love is always with us. Therefore, we'll always be protected. And whatever it is that our faith is not prepared for, the salvation that Christ has purchased for us on the cross will save our lives. Those are the defensive armors. Then we finally have the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God. That is our ultimate offensive weapon. This is what will actually allow us to fight back and push against the enemy, gaining some ground against him. And the sword of the Spirit is paired uh, with praying in the Spirit, as if that this is how we swing the sword of the Spirit by using the Word of God 
in our prayers. Meaning, it's not only enough to learn and know the Word of God, but to actually use the Word of God in our prayers. Coming to God and speaking His words after Him, countering whatever lies the enemies throws at us to test our faith. Perhaps one tangible example of how this works is uh, when Jesus was being tempted in the desert by Satan. How Jesus continuously fends off the devil's lies by using Scripture while, if you remember, fasting. Which is not only just like not eating, but also a time of dedicated prayer. That's how we fight back. So we're meant to meditate on how we personally should be equipped with this armor and how that looks like in our particular lives, more generally, actually. Why Paul uses this armor metaphor is almost certainly because Paul knows the Old Testament Scriptures. Because, especially in Isaiah, the Messianic king that is promised is described as this heavenly warrior who will defeat every enemy of God's people while being equipped with the same divine armor. In other words, this armor is the same armor that Jesus put on. This is what our Savior used to defeat sin and death. That these armaments are now transferred to us, the church, which this letter over and over again calls his body and presence. Hence, Paul wants to know that the body of Christ can wear the armor of Christ because the logic is that these armaments are sufficient for Christ to be victorious. It is also sufficient for us. Hence, putting on the armor is basically another way for Paul to call us what he consistently tells us to do in his letters, to put off the old self and put on Christ. A call for God's people to renounce our former godless ways and put on the virtues of God. Meaning that how we fight in this war is not like in any other, with violence and using our strength or cunning. But our fight is actually done in actually performing Jesus' humility, sacrifice, and weakness that He exemplified in His life. Seeing that is actually the way that will lead to glory. And one very important thing that Paul does emphasize about this war that we are in is that we are in it together. All of the yous in the book of Ephesians are all plural meaning that these instructions is not merely addressing individuals, but the corporate identity of Christ's body. That's why after describing the armor, Paul's final instruction for us in verse 18 is actually to watch and pray together. He says, keep alert with all perseverance and make supplication for all the saints. So this, friends, was never a solo battle. God has intended for us to stand shoulder to shoulder to protect each other. If you know uh, what a Roman uh, phalanx looks like, and if you can Google that, it's actually they form this formation like a box, and they make like this turtle shell where they clo stand closely together in order that the enemy won't get through. And we do that by keeping each other in our prayers, keeping each other accountable, making sure that they got their gear too. That's how we're going to survive. And this is what will testify to the enemy that Christ is Lord, that we are truly 
free from the devil's power. Hence, it's important for us to ask ourselves as the church whether or not we've been truly doing that. Whether or not we're actually battling alongside one another in prayer and watching each other's back by lovingly addressing sin or are we just hanging out? The church, friends, will never function properly unless this happens. And along those lines, our loyalty and interest to this war should not only limited to our, be limited to our particular church, but also to the proclamation of the gospel to all people in every place. Because everyone is under attack from the same enemy, and their only chance is to be protected by the same armor. Which is why Paul requests the Ephesians to pray for his gospel ministry, praying that he might continue to serve the universal church, faithfully and boldly proclaiming the gospel to them so that amongst all people in every nation it may be known that Jesus is indeed Lord and that they have also been freed from the power. Are we willing, friends? Are we involved in standing in solidarity with all the saints to do this? But right now, let me close with this, right? Perhaps some of you feel like you're losing this battle against the enemy yourselves. You have these sinful and selfish thoughts and you keep on falling over and over again to the same temptation. If you are there, I urge you to not listen to the enemy that is telling you right now that your sin is normal or that you are hopeless. Stop trying on your own. Let Jesus fight for you. Yes, make every effort to change your life. Yes, be resolute enough and be willing to make every sacrifice to minimize the power of the sin. It's true. The more you do that, the faster you'll see results. But if you think that it's your efforts that will get you over the sin, I know that you know that the second you stumble, the second you give in, the accusations and the temptations will come flooding back. But the Bible says that if you trust in Jesus, if we trust in Jesus, whatever efforts, whatever advances we make against sins will never be in vain. Christ's salvation for us is finished. He has already won this battle. So we will survive. The Spirit will keep us alive and Jesus will complete what is lacking in us. So even our failures is not a losing in the battle, but a part of our sanctification, making us stronger to fight another day. So if you're sick and tired today of struggling alone, Jesus is telling you today to let Him fight with you. Will you let Him? Let's pray. Blessed are you, the Lord, our God, our fortress, our deliverer, our strong tower, who strengthens our hands for battle and our fingers for war. Lord, we know that we are in a war zone. Your word warns us against it. But Lord, we are so often ignorant against it. We are lulled by the gifts that you have given us in our lives to enjoy. And we think that we live in a time of peace. Father, for those of us who are complacent, Lord, I pray that you can send your Holy Spirit to make us aware of the diligence and the intentionality with which we must fight this war. 
But for those of us here, Lord, who are discouraged, who are broken down, feeling that they are only losing this battle, I pray and plead, Lord, that you can give them the comfort of the Holy Spirit and that you may give them the salvation that the gospel does offer to them. Show them, Lord, that you are indeed fighting for you, that you are indeed for us, and nothing in heaven and earth can separate us from your love. Let this be the guiding truth that allows us to live our lives and continue to fight this battle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.